I find a lot of my new music on uh, social media. I see an, uh, someone post a review about an album. Maybe it's an album I've, I've listened to in the past, but uh, m- many times it isn't. I, I lived a pretty sheltered life, uh, so unless it's uh, reviewing a, a classic uh, contemporary Christian album, I probably haven't listened to the band before. Um, but I'm, I'm expanding my horizons. I'm getting a little bit better. And, and so I'll, I'll read a, a review of something, and I, I do this all the time in magazines and online, and, and I don't know if this is anyone else who engages in, in this practice, but I can't get very far another route review where they're talking about, especially if it's a positive review, where I'm like, hold on a second, I got to put this review aside. I got to listen to what it is they're saying. You know, what it is they're talking about. What's the song? What's this album? They just described it in a really interesting way. I got to go listen to it. So I don't even usually finish the review because I got to go listen to the album. Today, we're looking at uh, the original Christmas album in the Gospel of Luke. There's four songs. They're not really songs. We don't know if they were sung, but they're psalms, uh, like the the book of Psalms. So they're poetry. They're kind of like songs. And they show up amongst four different characters. One of the characters, two of the characters you're probably very familiar with, Mary, she has a song. And the angels, they have a song. We're probably familiar with at least one of those. But then Zechariah, this guy uh, uh, has a song, and this guy named Simeon. Maybe you're not even familiar with Simeon in the Christmas story. He's got this really great song we're going to look at in a couple weeks. But today, we're going to look at Mary's song, and I'm going to pull this trick that reviewers do. I'm not going to tell you the song. Um, I'm just going to talk about it. And if you want to know the song until the end. We'll get to the song at the end. But uh, if you want to know the song, you can, you can skip ahead. You can go look it up. It's, it's in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 52. So at any point where I say something, I'm talking about this song, you're like, I don't, I don't remember this song. Go pull up your phone, Google Luke, for, Luke chapter 1, 46 to 55, or just go to Luke 1, and you can find Mary's song. It'll stand out. It usually has a heading in a lot of uh, versions, and you can find it along. And then at the end, we'll listen to the song, uh, uh, and, and you can see what I'm talking about. Oftentimes, uh, growing up, I, had, uh, I, was, uh, I was a pastor's kid, um, so that explains a lot about me, first off. And one of the things that kids in small churches had to do uh, was they had to do whatever was happening up front. They had to do it. And that was me. So when it came to Christmas Eve and there was a pageant, you absolutely better believe I'm wearing some sort of terrible costume. Did anyone else have to wear a, a nativity costume? It's usually some sort of bathrobe with like a towel and then like cloth. You know what I'm talking about? And as an adult, we think it's the cutest thing as a kid. It's, I mean, we're raising funds for mental health for a reason, friends. I mean, this is, this is, this isn't always the greatest thing, is it? But so that was me. And here's the thing. When I thought back on these pageants, uh, that I had to always perform. And I was a shepherd sometimes. I think I was a wise man or one of the three kings sometimes. I was a variety of things. I was never Mary, obviously. But I was all of these different characters at different times. And, and, and sometimes different pageants had different lines and some characters even got to speak. And I think one time I was a shepherd and I said, let's go see baby Jesus. You know, really simple line. You can't give kids a lot, but really simple lines. The angels always got to say something. There was always some sort of narrator who was reading some version of the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of Matthew. But in, it was interesting as I reflected on those nativity pageants, there was one character who I never remember getting a word, Mary. I just don't remember any pageant where Mary got to talk. She was in many ways a prop, set up in the center in some sort of makeshift shelter. And her role was simple, to hold baby Jesus. That was her role in the nativity scene. 
And that could be a difficult role if it was a real baby Jesus. Anyone done that before in a Christmas pageant? You, you just, you know, someone had a baby recently, and so then they get to be baby Jesus. And usually that mom, if they're smart, is Mother Mary or whatever. But that's their role, is to hold baby Jesus. There's an old Christmas carol. And the name of the Christmas carol in its first line are the same, and it's simply, Mother Mary, meek and mild. I don't know this Christmas carol. It's an old one written in the 1800s. But Mary, Mother Mary, meek and mild, a prop in the Christmas story. Let me tell you about the real Mary. When you get into the story of Mary, it starts with Mary being visited by an angel, and this is significant. In a time where women did essentially what the men in their lives told them to do, the angel visited Mary. The angel visited Joseph, her fiancé, as well, but not to relay a message to Mary. Mary got her own angel. The angel didn't go to her dad, who would have had ultimate sort of property rights over Mary in this particular culture. No, the angel went to Mary directly and said, Mary, this is what you're going to do to Mary. And Mary, she decides in the midst of all of this confusion and excitement, because she's told that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, an honor that is beyond what she can even comprehend, she decides she's got to go see her cousin Elizabeth. So she travels. The story tells us in the Gospel of Luke that she goes from Nazareth, which is in the north, all the way down to uh, near the city of Jerusalem, to this little town where Elizabeth lived. It would have been about a week journey by foot. And it just says Mary went. And then Mary... She sees her uh, a cousin, and there's something happens when she sees her cousin. You can read the story for yourself. She sees it, and something lights up within her. Her cousin does something very, very important. Her cousin doesn't scold her, doesn't doubt her. I mean, Mary's pregnant now, and not because with Joseph's child. This is a bit of a scandal, even in Joseph's story. It's presented as such. And she, uh, but Elizabeth doesn't view it as a scandal. She doesn't doubt her story. She believes Mary's story. And not only that, the Holy Spirit enters her, and Elizabeth, and, 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 and her child, John the Baptist, stirs in her womb, and she. She, she proclaims over Mary that Mary is blessed. Like, oh, Mary, this is the best thing ever. God has favored you. And something about that encouragement, that word of faith, lit something in Mary. And she makes a proclamation. She's she, written as a song, written as a psalm. A song in the great tradition of women of the Old Testament, a song like Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, or Miriam's song, which Mary's name also would have been, Miriam's song in Exodus 15, a song that shares much with these songs. She proclaims this song, making it the longest speech of any woman in the New Testament. Little Mary, who's not allowed any lines in the nativity, is actually the woman in the New Testament who says the most. So this isn't the silent nativity prop Mary. This is a prophet speaking. And like a prophet, she issues a biting proclamation. I like to view Mary a little bit like a Katniss Everdeen. <laughs> Not meek and mild. <laughs> we don't know. Her song is revolutionary. 
Like Miriam's and Hannah's, it believes that something that is can be undone. Something that is one way can be flipped on its head. And it's her proclamation of what should be flipped on her head. That's, it's so bold that there are legends that suggest, and, and history doesn't always support this, but this is a story that has circulated, that, that there are public readings of Mary's song were outlawed in various Latin American countries like Guatemala and Venezuela. It said, not allowed. We don't know if that actually happened, but what we do know is that Mary's song was a bit of an anthem for what we called liberation theology, and we do know that in these countries, liberation theology was something that was many times outlawed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a sermon that he wrote in 1933, a year that some would say was Hitler's climax to power. Dietrich was a German uh, a pastor in Germany, very much not a fan of Hitler. And in 1933, he preached a sermon on Mary's song, and this is what he said. He said, the song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender dreamy Mary, whom we sometimes see in paintings. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about the power of God and the powerless of humanity. This isn't your typical Christmas song. This isn't Mary that the church would sing of as meek and mild. This is a revolution. This song has become popular amongst uh, um, the liberation theology of, of Latin America. And in liberation theology, just for a, a, just a little bit of context, some of you might find this interesting, it was this branch of theology that was birthed out of the struggle of those who were often oppressed or who were poor. And it, it was birthed out of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church in various uh, Latin American uh, countries uh, was, was tied to c- colonialism, and so it was tied to people with wealth and power. This is kind of how it was lived out in places like Guatemala, Guatemala and Venezuela. And uh, so so there began this movement, this stirring, after one of the Vatican's kind of shifted some of its thoughts on what it meant to be the church. It began this stirring where people started to think, and this sort of, it really felt revolutionary at the time, but it kind of seems silly now. They started to think maybe the church should care about the poor. Liberation theology kind of had three tenets. The first one was liberation from sin. This would be standard. This was the historic teaching of the church, liberation from sin. We've sinned. Christ died for our sins. We are free, set free. But they added two more things that we'd be liberated from, which I find interesting, and maybe you'll find them interesting as well. First, that the church and the gospel should also liberate us from injustice. If there are systems at play in the world that oppress people, the gospel of Jesus Christ should have something to say about that. Speak truth to power. If you look at Mary's song, you'll see why it became an anthem for this movement. The second one, which I also find really interesting, was we should, and this one's a little confusing, and I haven't studied this enough to be an expert, but they believed uh, the third tenet being not just liberation from sin, not just liberation from injustice, but liberation from fatalism. This idea that many people who live oppressed lives get into this mindset, and I think the mindset we all can get into, where this is just the life, this is just the world as we know it, it can't be any different. Fatalism. Nothing will change. Have you ever felt that? Liberation theology suggests that the gospel of Jesus Christ can actually change the world. 
which we say we believe, but they actually lived out in many ways. It was a very controversial movement, and uh, the Vatican wasn't super excited about it at the time. The, the current pope, interestingly enough, was kind of came out of that movement, if you know anything about Pope Francis, um, but that's as much as I'll say about it as, as for now. But, but this song was, was an anthem for this movement, and, and it was like the songs of Miriam and Exodus and Hannah and 1 Samuel, because it used this really simple Old Testament belief. And it was the belief that God could turn the world on its head. Those who who have wouldn't, and those who don't have would. It's this picture that's played out in Mark. Uh, uh, It's a picture that's played out in Mark Twain's novel, uh, The Prince and the Pauper. Uh, I haven't read the whole novel. Anyone actually read the whole novel? It's actually surprisingly long. I didn't even know it was a novel. I thought it was just a fable. You know, like a simple story. I read the kid's version. I think I saw the one with Mickey Mouse. Is there one with Mickey Mouse? That sort of, yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Was, it's actually a very long, complicated novel. I, I opened it to start reading it, and then I realized it was, you know, an eight-hour audiobook listen, and I was like, whew, I got, this is Thanksgiving, friends. I don't got time for this. But it's, you know the story, Prince and the Pauper. It's a very simple story. I'll summarize it. You have this pauper, this very poor individual. He grows up in an abusive home. His dad's an alcoholic. His grandmother's an alcoholic. They make him beg. And he has these vision of, someday living in the palace. He wishes his life was different. Maybe you've, maybe you've felt this way. And he has this vision. Then you have this prince who also hates his life because he's forced to be a prince and do all the princely things that princes have to do. And they meet each other. They look exactly the same, and so they switch roles. It's a story that's been told over and over again in a lot of different ways. They switch roles, and the prince has to live and feel what it feels like to be a pauper, and the pauper gets to live in the palace. And one of the interesting things about the pauper living in the palace is he gets to make decisions eventually because he actually becomes king in the novel, um, and he gets to change the laws. And can you imagine what somebody who lived in poverty would do with the laws once they had that kind of power? And he does. He makes sweeping changes. At the heart of this story and at the heart of Mary's song, which is very similar to that kind of story, is is a message of mercy. In fact, Mark Twain begins the novel with a quote from Shakespeare, from his Merchant of Venice. The quote reads, in context, it says this, The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It is blessed him that gives and him that takes. It is mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to all in majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings, but mercy is above the separate way. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute of God himself. And earthly power doth then show likeliest gods when mercy seasons justice. Shakespeare says, you are never more like God than when you show mercy. Mercy is mentioned twice in Mary's song. The definition of mercy in classical Greek is defined as sort of the opposite of pity, uh, or the opposite of envy, I should say. So sign is the opposite of envy. Envy is this idea that when you see somebody with wealth or someone with comfort or someone who has nice, you know, the, the nicer house, you envy it. Well, mercy is when you see someone who has less than, who is hurting, who is destitute, you have mercy on them. Mercy, the opposite of pity. It's actually the term that's used in classical Greek to refer to the closing statement of someone who's on trial. So someone is on trial, and they have a jury of their peers in ancient Greece, and you're, you're finally going to make your case to try to sway the jury to let you go, 
to, to plead, you know, that you're not guilty. They would side on you. And that statement, that final plea that you make to the jury for your case to be won is what they called mercy. Mercy was this cry for help. Cry for help from those who hurt. Cry for help for justice. A cry for a second chance. Mercy was a reversal of the roles, giving honor to those who didn't have it, love to those who weren't lovable, lifting up the poor, giving dignity to the hurting. And Mary's story is filled with mercy. Mary was from the town of Nazareth, and the best way to understand the town of Nazareth would be to think of it as like a trailer park. It's this little town outside of a major metropolis, and it was filled with caves sort of the ancient equivalent of trailers. They were cheap. Some of them were a little bit more furnished and nice, but many of them were nothing more than primitive caves. And it was in this town that, that Mary grew up, very poor, a nobody town. I think they said of Jesus once, am I misquoting, you know, nothing good comes from Nazareth? No, nothing good comes from Nazareth. This is the town that Mary came from. And this Mary, a nobody, um, she's also a woman. And if you show me a difficult society, a place where there's poverty, almost 100% of the time, it's the women who are going to suffer even more. It's the double suffering of the women's plight throughout history. You find a place where it's really difficult for just people and families, and the women have to take a lot of times the greater brunt of the pain. And this is Mary's story. Mary, from a poor place as a young woman with nobody. And she is going to give birth to the Messiah. I think there's this moment before she makes her proclamation, her song, her anthem, that, I, that she realized what it meant. If she was going to give birth to a king, well, what did that make her? If you give birth to a king, what does that make her? A princess? A queen? It certainly doesn't make you a nobody. And it's almost like she was that pauper who now is in a place of royalty. And she says, well, if I'm going to be queen, a few things got to change around here. That's what her song is about. What she thinks needs to change. If I'm going to give birth to the God of the universe, some things should probably change around here. And she makes it very, very clear what those are. Mercy saw her in her low position and lifted her up out of it and gave her the boldness to say, yeah, a few things need to change. Mary's womb is the crux of the biggest role reversal of all time. You have God, God of the universe, God who could do or say or be anything. And God stepped down from the throne in heaven, a king of kings. We just sang it, king of kings. And would not only be born as a human, not entering as a human, but not entering as an, a full, as an adult, but be born as a child, as an infant, vulnerable to the world's elements. But be born in a family that, honestly, someone looking on would say, well, they really don't have enough to provide for Jesus. Really should probably come to me. Jesus would have gotten a much better education with my family. Much better, you know, Jesus is not going to eat very well. He's not going to get all of his vitamins. Not with Mary's family. And Jesus entered into the life of a nobody. God becoming low. And Mary, by that same act, getting lifted up. 
becoming someone that now, 2,000 years later, we still talk about. Pretty famous, actually. Well, if God, the God of all things, was uh, willing to step down from God's throne and live as one of us, as, as a common person, what did that mean for the other kings or the other presidents or the other leaders of this world? And, and what would happen if a king didn't want to follow suit? It'd be like uh, living, working for a company where the CEO made a normal practice of going and working amongst the, the lowest level of his employment, whatever that is in that company. You'd go and work, you know, maybe serve as a janitor. And he made a regular practice as a CEO to just engage in the lowest, lowest what, what we as a world would say the lowest form. But it's just part of his, it's just who he is. He goes and does that. But you're an executive there. You're not the CEO. And you have no desire to do that. How long will you keep your job? If the CEO, your boss, is lowering himself and you're like, no, thanks. That's the story that we have in the Gospels. Uh, God made it very clear what it meant to be a leader. And the leader at this time, during the time of Mary, was uh, King Herod. Herod was really humble. He called himself Herod the Great, a self-imposed title. Can you imagine someone who that the name they give themselves? Joseph the Great. Um, That should be on my business card. this guy was actually kind of insane, super paranoid, uh, had a lot of issues. Um, he was extremely paranoid. He, he, the story in the, in the Gospel of Matthew suggests that he killed all of the children within the age of Jesus out of fear that the king had been born. And, and we don't know in history whether that happened quite like that or not, but what we do know in history is that Herod the Great killed his wife because he got jealous of her. He killed three of his own sons because they had become adults, and he was afraid they were going to take his throne before he was done being king. This is insane. And then he was going to kill his brother. His brother actually, you know, survived that because he died before Herod had a chance. This was Herod the Great, this king who was paranoid, wanted power, thought he was fantastic. And it's in that, within probably sight of Herod's palace, that Mary sings her anthem, bold as someone who's commissioned by God, and the tradition of some really great women. A a song that calls for the reverse of roles, where kings have to be brought down and those who are poor have to be raised up, proclaiming liberation to the hurting, rooted in the belief that God had shown her mercy, had heard her cries, and has acted, and so God would act for other people as well, other who cried out in hurting. And she said this. She proclaimed her song. So now, are you eager to hear what she said? Try to create a little anticipation here. We're gonna, I want you to hear the song. And, and I almost intentionally didn't want to read the song for myself because I, I know something is true. I'm, I'm a male in a place of leadership. A certain amount of privilege with that. And the song doesn't mean the same coming from me. So what I've done is I've asked uh, people like Mary, women, to read the song. And I'm going to invite them to read it now.
Jesus was born, and he grew up just fine, by the way, with Mary. And when he became an adult, he entered a synagogue one day and was allowed to read the scripture reading. Maybe he was even asked uh, the, when he came in, like I just did to all of you. Thank you for reading, by the way. He was asked to read a scripture. He opened up a scroll out of uh, uh, Isaiah, and he read this. He read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and declare the year of the Lord's favor. He sat back down and he said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus, echoing the words of his mother, said, this is what I'm about. If there is oppression, if there's hurt, if there's neglect, I've come to bring good news to the poor. I'm going to invite the band to come up. This Christmas, as we move towards Advent and as we look at these songs that uh, show up in the Christmas story, this, this will be one of the themes that we see, that God came not just to um, make our season jolly and bright, but to challenge us, to turn things upside down. And my challenge for you is, what would it look like for your life to be reversed? I encourage you to sit with that. What would it look like if, if your life had turned upside down? It, it can happen, first off. I hope it doesn't. That's not what we want for anyone. Uh, the year of the Lord is a time of, of, of great comfort and prosperity. But, but the challenge of Mary's song is that, that those who are here will be brought up and those who are here will be brought down. And wherever you find yourself on whatever paradigm you consider, what would it look like for your life to be flipped upside down? And is there some part of that that Christ hopes to do in your heart this Christmas? Let's pray. God, we give you thanks. Speak to us through the words of, uh, of Mary. Challenge and encourage us. In your name, Jesus, amen.